0: Eisenberg on WHMP. I'm Bill Newman
1: and I'm Buzz Eisenberg.
0: And it's Monday, so it must be Mayor's Monday on WHMP and we have with us the, this Monday the Mayor of Greenfield Roxanne Wiedergartner. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start this morning by letting our listeners know that we are going to devote a fair amount of the show today to remembering John Over and all he, has, all he did and has accomplished for our region. Uh, he was one of a kind, as I said, and I refer, referred to him that way in my uh, emails back and forth with Stan Rosenberg, former State Pre- Senate President Stan Rosenberg, who couldn't be with us today, but will be with us later on in the week, I hope. Roxanne Wiedegardner, Madam Mayor, uh, I'd appreciate your thoughts with regard to the passing of Congressman Olber.
2: Well, I don't think there was a community in Western Massachusetts and as far over as the central part of the state, too, because his district as a congressman just grew and grew. But uh, the Western Massachusetts that wasn't touched in some way by by John Oliver and his 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 wonderful way of being an exemplar of what it means to be a steward of good government because that's what he believed in for sure. And that government can do good for all of us. So, um, and I, I've always loved meeting him from time to time. Uh, he was always smiling and welcoming, but I think for Greenfield, what he did most is the John Oliver Transportation Center. And uh, in true John Oliver fashion, I was chair of the planning board when at the 11th hour They brought over the site plan for us to see. I mean, 11th hour, it was like five o'clock before a six o'clock meeting. And uh, it was oops, John forgot that he needs to run this by the planning board, which he didn't really need to do, but he did anyway. So anyway, um, I got first peek at the center and it's just wonderful that we have it. It's so important to Greenfield. Um, the, The train stops here on the way to New York City and on the way to Montreal. We are looking forward to getting the east-west rail so that we can get that train coming through here and and going on to Boston. Um, not directly from here, of course. It'll go down the valley and then over. But um, that's uh, that's going to be key, I think, to economic development for all of Western Massachusetts. And uh, I think it's something that John Oliver would be, if he were in Congress today, would be making sure um that we got all the resources that we need and that the state um people at the state also knew how important it was to this region
0: we are speaking with the mayor of greenfield roxanne Gardner, about john olver and his passing of course he passed last thursday at the age of 86. he had retired from congress in 2012 after spending 20 years, 21 years as the Congressional Representative from Western Massachusetts. And prior to that, over 20 years as a State Senator, and, uh State Representative for a few years as well. Uh, Madam Mayor, uh, we should let you know too that we are going to have some of uh, John Oliver's former staff members, including uh, the former Mayor of Northampton, Mayor David Narkowitz and Former Great. representative, longtime representative Ellen Story. So, uh, we will fill in more and talk more about John later in the show.
3: Great. While we
0: have you, while we have you, we have uh, pressed you on the show in uh, recent appearances here about what is happening with the Greenfield police. Since we have you today, I'd like you, to, if you could, bring us up to date. What is the status with regard to the Greenfield police and coverage in the 11 p.m. to 7 a.m time period?
2: Well, I don't know if we've talked about this, but we did receive a Department of Justice COPS grant uh, specifically for hiring. Oh, there's my dear friend, Ellen Story. Hello there, good morning. (laughs) So um, anyway, uh, we got the COPS grant and uh, that will allow us to hire three new officers. So in the city council um, last, well, their last meeting, a couple of weeks ago, uh, accepted the grant. They didn't really need to, but because it obligates us, it's a grant that will cover uh, the salaries for the next three years. And on the fourth year, the city of Greenfield is obligated to pick up those salaries. So we had the council at least review it and accept it, because even though most of them will not be around in four years, they are obligating finances going forward. So it's a little bit of, you know, wonkiness, right, David, in the city, in city government. So um, with that, we'll be able to hire three new officers. That hiring process is beginning. Um, I've heard from the chief that we have some great applicants. a, a couple women, uh, people of color. We just have a broad section of applicants. So we're looking forward to, to seeing that happen. In the meantime, sure. we've also um, started to rebuild our Public Safety Commission after several resignations, uh, primarily just due to personal circumstances. So uh, we have two new members, three new members on the Public Safety Commission, and we are looking for one more. Hopefully we'll bring someone forward before too long uh, for the council to review and approve. And um, they are working with the chief on upgrading his um, and revising. He's already revised the promotions policy. It's sitting with the unions right now for their approval. So uh, he'll run it by the Public Safety Commission and they will discuss it and review it and then and then they're also starting to work on the hiring committee. So the so Ma- hiring so, process.
0: So Madam Mayor, I want to get onto one other topic before we let you go this morning. Sure. With regard to the coverage of Greenfield by the police in that 11 o'clock to 7 o'clock hour, right. when last when last we spoke, there was going to be three or four hours when there was not going to be coverage. Is that still the case? And when will that be remedied?
2: Well. It is still the case these three officers will go a long way towards that some of them and we are looking for officers that have already been through the academy so. The applicants who have been through the academy so will will probably you know be take precedence over someone who has it, but uh, we'll see on that respect, so once they can be full fledged officers and working, I think that will help significantly. The, so won't, it will go into yeah. effect March 1st, though, and as I I do not believe we do have a couple of rather uh, also open positions um, due to a uh, recent resignation of one police officer who went on to the state police. So um, we will um, we'll get more police officers there as soon as we possibly can, and hopefully that gap will get filled.
0: And so the coverage will not be from midnight to three a.m. Is that no, right? No,
2: no. no, um, <laughs> <laughs> No, we have coverage for that. It's the three to. Uh, it's the three to seven a.m. That isn't covered. That's right.
0: I see. We're only the only coverage. We-
2: generally, the least available hours. I mean, least uh, busy hours, and um, the state police when they are able we'll cover those hours for us uh, so um, you know we're doing doing what we can
0: let me turn to one last topic tonight you give your annual address the state of the city what are you going to say
2: oh lots of things <laughs> the state of our city is uh, doing well uh in many respects um the uh, tax rate went down for the second time in a row. Um, and it's the lowest it's been since 2012 and that is $19.65. So, um, and we're still moving right along. Um, we, even with the uh, that lower tax rate, which is a good thing. Our property valuations are complete now. so. That's helped. And um, we've, oh, there's just a whole lot of things. I can't even, uh, (laughs) it's hard for me to say. We've got our downtown revitalization program in full swing. Um, The library is due to open in June. The fire station is, um, is moving right along on the other end of Main Street. Uh, the Wilson's project is still in ongoing and, you know, we, we remain involved in that, so there's a lot and um, one of the bright spots, speaking of budgetary issues and whatnot, I hired a grant writer uh, two years ago now, or a year and a half or so ago now, and uh, in the last year and a half, um, we have brought in uh, $61 million in grant money uh, across all Departments, uh, you know, benefiting all all the departments in Greenfield. Granted, some of that is ARPA money, uh, five million dollars worth, so a small bit of it. But um, we got a wonderful grant from the USDA for the fire station of around nine hundred thousand, so that's gone a long way towards funding that um, twenty one million dollar building. Uh, so we're um, I'm feeling very good about where the city is right now.
0: And the speech that you will deliver is where and when?
2: It is tonight at 630 at the John Zahn Senior and Community Center.
0: OK, well, congratulations on all that. Did you really say $61 million?
2: $61 million.
0: Over, I take it, some period of years.
2: A year and a half.
0: To get that money. Wow. Yeah. Well, con- congratulations.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Her name is Athena and she's a house of fire.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, congratulations, Madam Mayor. This is Mayor's Monday on Talk the Talk. We've been speaking with Roxanne Wiedegardner, who is the mayor of Greenfield. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Madam sure. Mayor. And thank you for sharing your memories and your thoughts with about John Olver. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back. We're going to talk to former State Representative Ellen Story and former Mayor David Narkowitz. And we will have other, other luminaries as well. We're going to remember John Olver. like we'll right stay
2: on for a little
4: while? More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
5: What are the things on the menu at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant that were on the menu when Paul and Elizabeth's opened in 1978? There's fish and chips, which is tempura-style fish and chips with an ultra-light batter. There's those enormous whole-wheat rolls. There's Paul and Elizabeth's fish chowder, so rich and creamy it's kind of hard to believe it's dairy-free. There are new things on the menu all the time at Paul and Elizabeth's, side-by-side with things that we never seem to tire of, like pie.
6: That stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night. Ugh. The creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs. Well, if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner, and the creaking noise isn't the stairs, and it's your knee, maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. Call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy.
7: My name is Jenny Papa George. I'm the director of planned giving at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Having a strong community health system is vital to the health and well-being of our community. At Cooley, we're grateful to the community that supports us through your kind words, generous gifts, and legacy plans. Without you, we wouldn't have a thriving community hospital that's here for you and the people you love. I welcome you to get in touch to talk about what Cooley means to you. Visit us at cooleydickinson.org/giving.
4: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
0: We continue our remembrance of John Olver. Today's Daily Hampshire Gazette had his obituary. Let me read the first few sentences. A workhorse, a workhorse, not a show horse, is what John W. Olver's campaign called him in a phrase that closely matched his unflashy but solidly productive political career. Oliver, who served both chambers of the Massachusetts legislature and in the U.S. House of Representatives for a total of 44 years, died on February 23rd, 2023, at age 86 at home in Amherst. Goes on to say, much admired by his constituents and colleagues for his intellect, broad vision, hard work, and attention to detail, Oliver devoted himself to progressive causes and to supporting progressive candidates. We have with us two people who worked with and or for John Olver, one the former mayor, longtime mayor of Northampton, David Narkowitz, the other former representative, longtime representative, Ellen Story. Representative Story, let me start with you. Could you share with our listeners how you worked, how you knew John Olver and what your memories are and what you think his lasting contributions have been? Oh, so
8: many. He used to tease me and call me his granddaughter even though there was only five years difference in our ages because he was first the state rep from amherst and then jim collins actually was there for a while and then stan rosenberg and then me so he 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 talked about that succession and said that i i i was following in his footsteps he one of the times that I especially remember him we were speaking in Northampton in some big building on Center Street I don't remember what the group was but there was a panel of us and someone had told us that there were some dissenters on some issue in the back of the room and they were going to ask all kinds of um, nasty questions at the end and so John knowing that just kept talking just <laughs> talked and talked slowly and deliberately in the the way only John could do and used up all the time
0: well so let me ask you no... about that i want <laughs> to i want to ask you about that because john over could, I mean, we, we used to make fun of, uh, Senator and then representative over about how he could put an audience to sleep. Yes, now, he, he, he was in fact an extraordinarily competent, thorough, uh, yes. knowledgeable, uh, detailed, the things that he went to work on legislatively, he knew up and down and backwards and sideways and forwards. And it was amazing what he knew about those issues he was involved with and the legislation he would be writing. But he was such a chemistry professor, which is what he was, <laughs> and so not a politician. So how yeah. did he su- how did he succeed? I know we make, kind of made fun about John's speeches, uh, kind of like the uh, Bill Clinton speech at the convention that was so famous right. for its length. But John could do that sort of thing. And people said, "Well, it's just John Oliver, just who he is. And yet he got elected. He was famously popular in the district. Yes, yes. how? How, given that <laughs> lack of political acumen.
8: I'm not sure that would have happened in every district in the country, but in in this district, in our district, people just loved him for that, that he 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 was not a gladhander. He what you saw is what you got. And people trusted him to know exactly what he was talking about they believed him and they were happy to let him be their leader and to follow him and vote for him time after time after time
0: let me turn to david narkowitz who worked directly for uh John John Over. David Narkowitz, could you share with us you're gonna to have to unmute for this. Could you share with us your memories to, first I think tell our listeners what your what your uh, position was on his staff, what your responsibilities were and then share with us what you will please about uh, John Olver.
9: Thanks uh, thanks for having me on um, Bill and Buzz, and thanks for doing this. Um, so I well, first of all, I grew up in Franklin County so, um, John was my state senator pretty much all my life so he was a fixture even when I was a kid um, growing up in Franklin County um, but I got to I, I got the honor of working for John in the early 1990s um, at, uh, as a member of his district office I had uh, come back from Washington DC i had been uh, working on the hill um, and moved back to the area um, and started working for John out of his Holyoke office um, and uh, and what a, a, you know, sort of described it as a master class in terms of um, a public servant, uh, a policymaker, um, somebody who was a representative in just every sense of the word in terms of being present in his district. Um, and also, you know, I think you're alluding to it with your with your discussion of his speeches, he was sort of an anti politician. I mean, yes. he, was, he was like an anti-politician. I mean, we would, you know, people would joke about him not being. He would he would laugh uproariously, but people would joke about him not being, you know, a blow dry politician. Um, and you know, if you knew John didn't have a lot of hair, so he just always found that comment hilarious. But um, you know, he didn't he didn't crave headlines. He didn't. Um, he wasn't the first one at the microphone. Um, he just, you know used his methodical style and, you know, and he brought his, his brain power. I mean, he was a brilliant man. If you read his, his, you know, obituary this morning, I mean, you know, graduated from high school, young breezed through, you know, RPI, Tufts and MIT in, in quite short order to get his PhD. And then was teaching chemistry in his early twenties at UMass. Um, so a brilliant, a brilliant mind. And, you know, he cared deeply about these issues. Um, and he, he just focused, uh, on them. And, um, again, just if you look around the district, as so many people have said, um, you, you see the impacts of John Oliver's 44 years of service just about everywhere throughout the district. Um, I I did kid him a lot as mayor because the only community that didn't get a multimodal center. Center in the entire <laughs> Western and Central Massachusetts was Northampton, um, because obviously uh, the GOP in their attempt to to finally get rid of John Oliver, uh, you know, took Northampton out, famously took Northampton out of the district, um, but it didn't matter. He still kept winning and winning and winning. Um, and I think it's important to point out, you know, he he won. He flipped two seats, not just one seat. He flipped a state senate seat. Uh, From Republican to Democrat, and then he went and flipped, you know, a a seat in Congress that you know hadn't been uh, hadn't been held by a Democrat since the 1800s. Um, So he was sort of just again iconoclastic that way. It, it, It made no sense, but as Ellen said, people loved him, and and also he was he was a progressive. He he really truly. You know, if you look at his voting record, I mean, he was an early supporter of of abortion rights, of um, marriage equality, of gay rights. I mean, he you know, uh, you know, long before it became fashionable, long before a lot of national politicians, you know, got the courage to to be on those the right side of those issues, he was always there.
0: What was he like to work for?
9: Um, uh, he was. You know, in some ways, he was probably one of the most challenging bosses I'd ever had, um because he he um, he he prepared. He really needed to have as much data and as much information. And so, as a staff person, you had to make sure that you know, uh, you know I covered economic development issues in Hampshire and Franklin County. And so you really had to do your homework and because you knew the kind of information John was going to need, and he would want. Um, and he would want it sometimes at all hours of the day and night, you know, it would not be uncommon for the phone to ring, you know, at 11 o'clock at night on a, on a weeknight, um, and you'd hear the, the baritone voice, David, um, and it would be, uh, and, uh, hi, hi, John. Uh, he would be stuck in Washington, you know, some vote was going late and he was just in his office and, you know, tell me about what's happening with, you know, the, you know, Greenfield tap and die project or Tell me what's happening with this project, or tell me what's happening with that project. He was always thinking. He was a, you know, he was a detail person, but he was also a strategic thinker. He saw the big picture, um, and you know, and for all that detail, he he knew how to take that and translate it, not in speeches, uh, you know, not in press releases and you know sound bites, but how was he going to take that? Uh, either to Beacon Hill or to Washington and translate it into actual policy um, or bricks and mortar that would actually have a lasting impact, you know, for the people that he served. So, you know, and again, and he was, he was quirky to be sure. Um, Yelena, my wife Yelena was remembering a story actually, uh, you know, when we were talking about him this weekend. I mean, you have read that he was an outdoorsman, he loved to garden, you know, he grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania. So he was, you know, he he loved the outdoors. Um, we bought this house, I don't know, back in 1995, and we were so proud. We actually, you know, invited the, the office over uh for like a barbecue just to kind of you know show everybody our new little for single family home we bought and john came and other staffers came and and at a certain point in the um in the event like nobody could find john um and he was actually on his hands and knees weeding our flower garden (laughs) Uh, which my wife was somewhat mortified about but if you knew john john was not somebody, he was not flashy. He was not, he did not think of himself as this sort of VIP person. Um, and if he saw a weed in the flower garden, he was gonna get down <laughs> on his knees and uh, start pulling weeds.
1: I've got to remember, got to, remember to ask the government to come over. To come over. <laughs> uh,
9: <yeah. laughs> Haven't had him over, I'm sorry.
0: So, let, let me turn from, uh, former mayor David Narkowitz to former state representative Ellen story. David Narkowitz was telling us stories about what it's like to work for John as a staffer and with with the demands that were put on him as as a person working for John, you were really working with John and you pointed out that in some ways he was a political mentor for you. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that in the couple minutes we have left, because John was, as you and David have both pointed out, so much the anti-politician politician. politician. I mean, how could he be a mentor to you um, for someone who is, I mean, the man hated, hated, hated debates. I mean, he didn't really like campaigns. He didn't like doing the the rope lines. He didn't like any of that. And yet he was your political mentor. How did that work out?
8: He... (laughs) I think the fact that he was tall helped. (laughs) He had had good stature and, and he was quiet, which was unusual in a politician. He, He didn't always have to be the center of attention. But when he did say something, you knew that what he said was going to be right on right on the, exactly on the issue. and so you listened to him and you respected him. and you know as you got to know him, you really liked him. He had a dry sense of humor that was very quiet, um, but all the more precious uh, because of it. and he 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 was just easy to look up to and to respect. Even though he was not at all flashy, he really was the anti-politician.
0: Well, maybe we should leave it there. It's a, is such wonderful words. You want to give us one last word on your friend, your former boss, your political ally, uh, David Narkowitz?
9: It's hard to really improve on that. But again, just want to say, just what a legacy. I mean, spent more than more than half of his life serving in elected office and never lost sight of the people um, and the the communities that sent him to represent them and spent pretty much every ounce of energy that he had uh, to improve their lives um, and to improve the the lives of the communities that they lived in. Uh, That was his sole mission, and he uh, was always focused on that first and foremost.
0: I'm going to leave it there. Former Mayor David Narkowitz former Representative Ellen Story, thank you both so very much. Really, very moving, and we appreciate your time. We'll be right back more with Talk the Talk after this.
4: (laughs) You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
10: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Kenneth Santana Rodriguez, the man accused of shooting and killing an employee of a salon in the Holyoke Mall, was set to be in Holyoke District Court this morning. A probable cause hearing was scheduled for the 23-year-old for a judge to listen to testimony from witnesses and determine whether the evidence is enough to send the case to Superior Court. Rodriguez is charged with murder in the death of 33-year-old Trung Tran of West Springfield. Tran was an employee of the Touch of Beauty Hair and Nail Salon who prosecutors say was shot when a dispute between Rodriguez and another man inside the salon turned violent. The victim was caught in the crossfire and died before he could be taken to the hospital, according to the DA's office. A two-car crash on Route 10 in Bernardson Saturday night sent one person to the hospital. The Bernardson Fire Department reported that calls came in at 6.17 p.m. after two cars collided heading westbound in the area of the Dead River Company on Northfield Road. All of the occupants of both vehicles were evaluated on scene, and one person was brought to the hospital by Northfield EMS with minor injuries. A teenager reported missing more than a week ago has been found safe. According to the official Facebook page of the town of Huntington, Joshua West has been found. State police have been looking for the public's help in finding the 17-year-old last seen in the Norwich Lake area on February 16th. Now with your forecast, 22 News meteorologist Adam Stremko.
11: For today, look for increasing clouds, highs 34 to 38. Tonight, snow could be heavy at times overnight, overnight lows 22 to 26. And the for Tuesday, snow tapering off during the afternoon, highs in the low to mid-30s. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist
10: Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. 101.5,
4: 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts.
10: This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
3: Yo soy Johan Rashebega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden recorrió el centro de Kiev en una visita no anunciada el lunes y prometió apoyar a Ucrania todo el tiempo que sea necesario en un viaje programado para eclipsar al Kremlin antes del primer aniversario de la invasión de Rusia. Cuando el presidente ruso Vladimir Putin lanzó su invasión hace casi un año, pensó que Ucrania era débil y que Occidente estaba dividido. Pensó que podría sobrevivirnos, pero estaba completamente equivocado, dijo Biden. Los tanques rusos calcinados se alzan como símbolo del asalto fallido de Moscú a la capital al comienzo de su invasión que comenzó el 24 de febrero. Sus fuerzas alcanzaron rápidamente las murallas de Kiev solo para ser rechazadas por una resistencia inesperadamente feroz. Por su parte, Rusia dice que ha anexado casi una quinta parte de Ucrania, mientras que Occidente ha prometido decenas de miles de millones de dólares en ayuda militar a Kiev. En otras informaciones, el Consejo Municipal de Northampton votó a favor de formar una comisión para estudiar la posibilidad de reparaciones para los residentes, trabajadores y estudiantes negros. La medida sigue a una acción similar en Amherst y Boston. En una resolución, el Consejo Municipal de Northampton se disculpó por decisiones pasadas que, según dijo, arraigaron la segregación y la discriminación en áreas como la vivienda y las licencias. El Consejo Municipal también votó para crear una comisión para estudiar qué iniciativas deberían financiarse para reparar esos daños y nutrir a la comunidad y la cultura negras. El concejal de la ciudad, Gary Perry, quien copatrocinó la resolución, dijo que ahora trabajará con la oficina de la alcaldesa y otros concejales para presentar una especie de esquema de cuál será el cargo de la comisión y un cronograma, así como cuál será la composición de la comisión. Perry dijo que planea tener el esquema listo para el 30 de marzo. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
10: This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
12: Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They
13: wallow in corruption, crime and gore. ding ling ling city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. This is mess. Talk the, the Talk. The
0: And we are back, we have with us the, well, I should get his title correct. I know Dan Crowley as the executive editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the Greenfield Recorder. I think it's executive editor of Newspapers of New England. Dan, I don't mean to blow the introduction, but let's, let since we're on with, with newspapers, let's start with accuracy. What's your real
14: title? Well, you got the title right, but it's not of Newspapers of New England, it's, uh, it's the, those papers you mentioned in the Athol Daily News. Valley Advocate and Amherst Bulletin. Okay. In addition to the Gazette well,
0: and the Recorder. Well, thank you so
14: much for being here. Well, so, so, so wait a minute, Bill. PR-
1: so, does that mean that you have to say executive editor of and list every publication?
14: No, no. I think when you know I'm here in Northampton and I'm talking about the Gazette, it's of the Gazette. I don't, I don't have to string those other five along. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: so dan crowley we should point out to our listeners is going to have a regular segment with us on the show and this is not the day of the month but we wanted to have him early on this month and he will be with us once a month for a regular segment which i think is really going to be interesting for our listeners and the readers of the gazette and the recorder as well uh dan crowley i want to spend some time talking to you and we want to spend some time talking to you today about john oliver We should note that coming up in the 10 o'clock hour, for those listening in the morning, we will be speaking with Representative Natalie Blay, with another staffer for Congressman John Olver. Uh, Those who are listening in the afternoon will have already heard that that interview with Natalie Blay. But again, coming up at the 10 o'clock hour, we will be speaking with Representative Blay. Um, I'd like to ask you a number of questions about covering uh, the Congressman. But first, I'd like to ask you about something that really is roiling the media. Um, Happens uh, when cartoons become front and center, and there is a big story about Dilbert and Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. Uh, Dilbert is a cartoon I have always enjoyed. He's, Dilbert spends his time harpooning corporate America, and the uptight uh, conformity of that uh, world. And yet, and I would have said if you'd asked me, was the creator of Dilbert some kind of liberal or progressive? I'd say, of course he is, he has to be. Well, it turns out he's a Trump supporter, and a big supporter of Trump. And he made a series of racist comments in an interview recently that have gone viral. Uh, A number of newspapers have dropped Dilbert the cartoon uh, and uh, he's been in the Gazette he well the cartoon has been in the Gazette for as long as I can remember and I'm wondering whether this is an issue that is on your desk this morning so Dan Crowley, sorry started to start with a controversial difficult issue but <laughs> there it is so I thought I'd ask
14: well we have had a conversation about this uh, <clears throat> really beginning yesterday um, and um, we we are dropping that comic, uh, and that'll that'll be effective. I'm pretty sure tomorrow. Um, so um, you know we we're aware of what's going on. We're not f- we're not following the lead of any newspapers. We're having our own internal discussion about it. And and um, you know it's not the first time that I've had to deal with uh, an issue with Dilbert. Uh, mm. Last year we had a. Uh, another with some readers that weren't happy about one of the comic strips i had uh we get this comic uh, it's it's syndicated it's part of a pre-built comics page it wasn't that easy on a sunday to be dealing with a company in the midwest and getting a, a comic strip that's embedded in a pdf page uh, uh off there so <clears throat> um we are it um, wasn't it wasn't a, it wasn't a uh, difficult decision
0: Really, that, that's interesting. I'd like to hear more about the decision making process at the Gazette, because here is the question that I find not self evident, although a lot of people do. But here's the question. What he does, what this cartoonist, what Scott Adams does in the strip is not objectionable. I don't think he didn't do what, what has caused this uproar is nothing that happened in the strip itself. It's what he said and apparently what he believes. So if the strip is not objectionable, why pull him?
1: Well,
14: the the strip has been objectionable in the past, as I just said. Um, And do we need to wait for a third time now, whether it's in the comic strip or something that he's doing on, you know, uh, espousing racist views online? Do we want to wait for a third time to have this this flare up again? And I think, um, you know, what that creator stated is not something that's in line with our values at the newspaper and uh it's something people pay attention to i mean i've heard a l- i've heard from a number of uh of readers in the last f- uh, 24 48 hours about it um and um, i think the, the yes to answer your other question what's in the comic strip today it's about an office worker that has a career uh, a dream of being an internet guru <clears throat> um, you know, three little box comic that seems uh, not too controversial, but um, yeah, so that, that hopefully that gives you a little insight.
0: It, it does, and you say really not a hard decision, uh, notwithstanding the, you know, the guy's been drawing cartoons for a long, long time, um, and uh, a couple of controversial ones over, over that, that span doesn't seem to be unusual to me. Um, And while I do support this decision, I also think that it's not as simple as people would make it out to be. Um, uh, And I'm wondering if if there are any big picture uh, issues that came up in this discussion at the Gazette that you might wanna share with us.
14: Well, I think there's gonna be a lot of perspectives um, out there as we see with anything, Um, but, like I said, I think the statements that that that, that Scott Adams made um, are just uh, way out of line with what we, you know, like I said, the values of our of our paper, and and it's um, not something we really need to support.
1: Yeah, I'd just like to add. Sometimes we have to infer racism from something that somebody said. This was overtly racist.
14: Yeah. So, that is true. Yeah. So we are um, we are figuring out a plan B with that that section of the comics right now.
0: <laughs> oh, so right, right. So what's going to be in the space? That that's the next breaking news. Can you break that news right here and no, now, No, I, I can't.
14: We're trying to, we're, we're we're working on that. We're working on that. So. Okay. Fair enough.
0: <laughs> um, we 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 are spending a large amount of our show today trying to. Uh, do justice to the career and contributions of John Oliver, state representative and state senator for a couple of decades, and then a congressional representative for 21 years. Uh, there was a, uh, I thought a very moving uh, obituary in today's daily Hampshire Gazette. Uh, his, his passing has been front page news across the region, which I think is appropriate and certainly well justified by his contributions. I'm wondering if you could share with us what it was like for you who've had many positions at the gazette uh in terms of covering congressman olver who is who is remembered correctly as someone who didn't put out a lot of press releases didn't show up to make a lot of speeches didn't do all the things that politicians do all the time to bring attention to themselves and i'm wondering from a newspaper's point of view what do you do with it what do you do with a politician who's such a non-politician like that?
14: Well, I, yeah. The, <clears throat> based on what you said, he he made us work sometimes to to you know get what we could from him. Um, but I I used to cover. I started covering the East Hampton area, and his district um, was 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 there at the time. Um, and I think Holyoke um but uh i remember the first time i met him i was uh, out at a fall festival that they used to have in the city and the first thing that i remember of of uh meeting uh, mr Olver was how how tall he was That <laughs> was that was the biggest thing and he was walking around and i and i at first i said well because I, I hadn't really met him and I, I said who's that guy he's walking around shaking everybody's hands talking to everybody everybody's kind of knows who he is. And then I, I learned who it was pretty quickly. Um, and um, I think my, my impressions uh, of working, you know, with Mr. Olver over the years is he was very, um, always very thorough, very thoughtful. Um, I, I got the impression he's a very cerebral person and, um, and you know, if you look at the story that uh, Scott Mersbach did, uh, I think over the weekend, and then even the, the very comprehensive obituary today, just his impact on so many areas uh, here is pretty significant, um, whether it's transportation or the environment, um, some of these long lasting um, institutions like the, the transit authorities and the uh, agricultural preservation restriction program, um, uh, it was uh, and we had him in from time to time um, in our editorial boardroom to, to, to talk with him. And, and uh, like I said, very very uh, um, thoughtful person who really seemed to do was very thorough and, and, and did a lot of research uh, in, into things. And I think some of that came out in, in some of the coverage that we've had.
0: Well, I,
14: we're going to take a break
0: in a minute, but I have one last question on this side of the break. One thing that newspapers and, and other media care a lot about is accessibility. Will an elected official talk to you? Did John Oliver have that as part of his repertoire, that he would be available to you?
14: Well, we, we um, they all have their different styles, <laughs> the congressmen, and I think uh, you know, whether it's I want to talk to you about this issue or I, or I don't or uh, I'm happy to talk about this Maybe they're a little bit more accessible um, And uh, or I don't want to and and, th- and they're not um, but some some will have uh, more communication with staffers um, Where and others will um, you know, um, uh, mr. McGovern is someone that is pretty um, uh, Happy to get on a phone with a reporter uh, a lot of the time and, and stuff, and I think um, you know, Mr. Olver just had his own style of dealing with the news media. I think uh, I thought I read somewhere he's a bit media shy, um, but um, yeah, it's uh, you 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 can't expect everybody to be the same and, and react the same and respond the same way.
0: We are speaking with Dan Crowley, who is the executive editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, and the Greenfield Recorder. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more. Thoughts about the passing of John Olver after this.
13: There are places I remember
4: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
1: Alison Bechdel's graphic memoir, Fun Home, leapt off the page and onto the Broadway stage. Alison describes her landmark comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, as half-op-ed column, half-serialized Victorian novel. Alison Bechdel will be at Smith's this Thursday, reading from her new graphic memoir, The Secret to Superhuman Strength, and more. Allison Bechdel, a reading, plus a book signing with the Broadside Bookshop, this Thursday at John M. Green Hall at Smith College. It's free. Get tickets online at Smith College Tickets.
9: What's new at the Waitley Inn? everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit waitleyinn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley.
4: Push, push, come on, one more. Let's go, go, go.
10: Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are, to get you where you wanna be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together, Amherst or Northampton
13: cheddar it's not just a cheese it's a place it all started in the 12th century in the caves of the english village of cheddar in the caves the temperature and humidity made it the perfect place to mature a cheese imagine having to go spelunking for cheddar now it's easier they still make cheddar in cheddar but now they make it in Scotland, Ireland, California, Oregon, and Cummington. If you like cheddar, you better get a cheddar at State Street in Northampton or Cooper's Corner in Florence. It's so much easier than cave digging. Oh, they've got cheddar from jolly old England, but they have natural cheddar with porter from Ireland. They've got cloth-bound cheddar from Grace Hill in Cummington, an award-winning organic cheddar from Robinson Farm in Hardwick. Where better to get a cheddar made right here in Western Mass than right here in Western Mass at State Street and Cooper's, your Cheddar Header Quarters, but enough with the cheesy puns. You deserve cheddar than that. Don't go all the way to Cheddar England to get a cheddar. Get your cheddar at State Street in Northampton and Cooper's in Florence. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it.
2: Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield.
4: 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
0: We continue our conversation with the executive editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, Dan Crowley. So much to ask you about, not an, but let me get through things on my list, our list for this morning. The masthead, the masthead of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, head, and this causes consternation. Want to tell us about the change, why, and what kind of reactions you're getting?
14: Yeah, well, we changed that last week. If you noticed. Um... <laughs> and you know i
0: noticed i noticed and i noticed the story on the front page of the chapter and i think Thursday. oh by the way dear dear readers yeah. you might have noticed right. i noticed
14: right um well you know if some i people, like the old man said I, right also called a nameplate um <laughs> the uh you know, I think people have different reactions. Some people who, you know, one of the, ma- one of the reasons that, that has been done is we've, in, a, in all the papers in the, in the group in the Valley here, uh, have, a, have a space on the top right where we're able to um, uh, inkjet and mail the papers to people who receive them by mail. And um, the people who are receiving that paper now and not getting a mailing label uh, that might be stretched and stuck across part of the top headline are pretty happy about it. <clears throat> um there are some others that liked the most recent um uh, flag that we had and and um you know it's difficult change is difficult for for some people but we've had mixed reactions some people like it um i've gotten some texts and emails about it and and others um saying i'd like to see all the icon- iconic buildings um on your on your old one um <clears throat> so it also you know there was a lot of um uh, logos that we had that weren't in line, and this was part of a, 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 a this was a way to kind of get all of our branding back into one one place. <clears throat> we also moved. We moved in December, so for people that don't know that, uh, we moved from our Con Street office to Service Center Road, which is, you know, you could throw a rock from the old building and hit the new one. Don't um, do
1: it. <laughs>
14: <laughs> um, but, um, you know, we're in, a, we're in a new office space, and um, it's 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 been a, a nice move, and, and uh, so there's been a lot of change, kind of internally with office with office space and, and um, some of our, our redesigning going on.
0: I'd like to ask, just a minute left, our listeners, we're going to have Daniel on regularly the third Thursday of the month. Uh, can you tell us a yes or no that John Old's passing? That story it's been reported came out because his family put out a death notice is is that accurate um is that an unusual way for the gazette to get a story like this
14: it's it's not unusual to get a death notice and that kind of alerts us to somebody that has died um and that can be one way that we find out about a story uh it's not how we found out about Mr Olver we had we were contacted by people in the public that had learned about it and let us know
1: <clears throat> well, Bill, we we, uh, uh, we have to wrap it up. We're here with Dan Crowley. We thank you so much for being with us today and for uh, we're going to have you every month, and we're all looking forward yeah. to that very much. And thank you for the coverage from John Olver. It's been really important. We're going to be back right after these messages. For those of you who are, have been listening uh, with us in the morning, uh, there's another hour of Talk to Talk. For those of you who are um, listening in the afternoon, um, uh we are going to uh
4: live and this is talk the talk talk. for northampton and the valley since 1950 whmp northampton whmq greenfield northampton radio group station
10: it's 10 o'clock
1: and i'm buzz eisenberg
0: and i'm bill newman
1: and welcome to the show um we are talking today uh, about the loss of Congressman John Over, who died on Thursday. Congressman Over for 22 years, served this region in a manner that we can only say is legendary and has impacted the lives of everyone who lives here, but uh, so many. And uh, we are really lucky in our remembrance of John Over and his contributions to our lives we have uh, First Franklin Representative Natalie Blay with us, who was a staffer of John Over's. Hello uh, to you, Natalie.
15: Good morning. Nice to see you.
1: It's really nice to see you. So, if we're on Skype, and that's why we can see each other, for those who are listening, um, I can see, see your
15: forehead.
3: Right. <laughs>
1: So I, I am curious, you worked with John Oliver. Uh, could you just share some of your memories of John and your impressions of John?
15: Yeah. Uh, so I, when I moved to Massachusetts, I didn't actually have a job. We moved here because of my husband's work. And um, that was back in 2005. And I was lucky enough to be hired by John as, as a staffer and worked uh, for him until... He retired in 2012, when I was picked up by Congressman Jim McGovern. And, you know, John Oliver was just one, he had such tremendous integrity. He was one of the smartest people I have ever met in my entire life. And, you know, staffers, he really pushed us pretty hard. He expected us to know as much as he did about any given topic. And as smart as he was, that was a pretty uh, tall order. I people. But, I think
1: uh, yeah. pe- pe- people probably remember that he got his doctorate from MIT in chemistry, a language I don't speak.
15: <laughs> Nor do I. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was remember he was talking with uh, John Dajowski the other day, and I was talking about this spreadsheet that I had pulled together for John, and you know it was maybe ten columns you know, wide and hundred maybe a hundred rows long. And I, you know, I put it in front of him and he turns to me and he says, Natalie, this, this isn't right. This doesn't add up. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's an Excel, it's a formula. Of course, it, of course it's right. And he said, I want you to go back and, and run it again. And sure enough, there was a, there was something wrong with the formula and the entire spreadsheet was incorrect. And he just did it in his head and he did it all the time.
1: Yikes, challenging for you as a staffer. Yeah. Yeah, yes. you. I think that you worked particularly on economic development when you were working with John Oliver, right? So what were you doing um, and what was he doing as a result of your preparatory work?
15: Yeah, so, you know, he served on the Appropriations Committee and at the time we had earmarks. And so he staffed his office much differently than a number of other congressional offices where he hired someone Uh, for each of the district offices who was charged with economic development in the communities. So our jobs were to work with communities and nonprofits uh, and businesses, Um, but a lot of it was spent on identifying projects that could use that federal funding through the appropriations process to really change um, the outcome of a project. And that took a lot of background work, uh, you know, finding the projects, making sure that they were ready to go, and then advocating for them to receive earmarks at the federal level. And it didn't stop there. You know, after that, we had to make sure that the funding got to where it was supposed to go and ensure that the project happened. It was one of the most extraordinary things about John is that he really saw himself as a steward of taxpayer dollars. And if he, as an appropriator, was going to send money to any particular project, he wanted to make sure that those dollars were well spent.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner of uh, Greenfield this morning, uh, she talked about how he was a steward of good government. I had to smile when I read uh, in the Daily Hampshire Gazette there was an article in which you were you were describing these huge maps in the transportation arena. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us about those maps?
15: <laughs> yeah, we you know we went. We met regularly with Mass Highway, and in District 2, you know, I'll never forget, you know, if we were going in to meet with Al Stegman at the time, John Olver expected there to be maps, and not just maps printed on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper or even 11 by 14. Like, he wanted the maps that took up the entire conference room table, uh, so that he could take a look at how the project was being designed, and um, God bless Al. (laughs) He he walked John through all of those those maps and in the Gazette, I was quoted about us being in a car when we were doing the um, the knowledge quarter project along the Connecticut River Line. We were in a high rail vehicle uh, that can travel on roadways and railways. And he was sitting in the passenger seat in the front of this high rail vehicle with a map that was spread out across the entire dashboard. Uh, Because he wanted to understand the curvature of the line. He wanted to know um, what the angles were, how steep the railway was, where the crossings were. He really needed to know everything about it.
0: Natalie, can you hear me okay? I hope. All right, breaking up.
1: I'm afraid you're breaking up. Um, Yeah, Billy. Try one more time. Try one more time. (laughs)
0: All right, one more time. So, Representative Blay, here, here's what I'd like to know about uh, John Oliver. And I remember distinctly one Saturday morning being at a Democratic city committee in Northampton, and John Oliver was the featured speaker, and there were people saying, we're never gonna get out of here. We're just just <laughs> gonna go on forever. I mean, um, and there's a lot of discussion about John, and we've had this morning about, is it. a non-politician politician. And that, that is, I think unquestionably true. What I'd love to understand more uh, is how John moved from being a chemistry professor, um, you know, which is sort of this course we say, oh my God, I'll never understand any of this, um, to someone who was a really consummate, uh, not a politician, but really a consummate pub- public policy person. Uh, how did he make that transition? Why did he do that?
15: Hmm. It's a great question. And, and then how, you know, how did he do that? Um, you know, for him, I think he was able to get the respect, not only of his constituents, but his colleagues because he did put so much into it and it was never about him. Um, you know, it was always about what was best for the people that he served and the communities that he served. And, you know, as a result of, you know, people, knowing that he was never in it for himself, uh, he was able to garner the respect of his colleagues and rise really quickly um, in the ranks, certainly in in Congress, Uh, to be on an appropriations committee was really extraordinary for all of of Massachusetts at the time. Um, But yeah, he didn't, he never wanted to be in front of the press, he never wanted to be in the spotlight. And um, he was deeply respected by so many people for just wanting to do the right thing,
1: um, Representative Natalie Blay, I want to turn our attention. It's in a couple of minutes that we have before we take a break. Um, to there are new committee assignments that uh, are happening in the legislature. Can you tell us what your assignments are and how you feel about them?
15: Yeah, and yeah, I was actually able to tell John about these uh, in a couple a couple of days before he passed away, and. You know, I, I led with the fact that I'm remaining on the Transportation Committee, which was a deep passion of his. And he seemed pretty impressed by that. When I told him I was staying on Ways and Means, he, didn't, he wasn't quite as impressed with the Ways and Means <laughs> Committee. Um, but, and then I'm also staying on Tourism, Arts and Culture. And then the most exciting thing, I think, to come out of the committee assignments this year is the fact that there is a new Agriculture Committee That committee was originally included in the Environment, Natural Resources, and Agriculture Committee. Uh, This session has been peeled off, and I think it's a real testament to um, how much we've been able to elevate food security issues and agriculture and the importance of of our farms here in Massachusetts. Uh, So I'm proud to be vice chairing that committee on the House side uh, with Representative Paul Schmidt, who is the chair of the committee. And of course, on the Senate side, I'm thrilled to be working with Ann Gobi and Joe Comerford, uh, who are also the chair and vice chair of that on the Senate side.
1: Well, it's really exciting. Um, I really want to thank you for um, taking the time this morning to help in our remembrance of John Oliver. who uh, we're not just mourning him. We are celebrating not only his life, but the impact that he had on so many. I know that you work really hard to impact your constituents in the same way that John uh, successfully did for his. So thank you so much, Representative Natalie Blay. We're going to take a break when we come back. There's a really interesting and important book by Josh Mensch uh, called the, Na- the Nazi Conspiracy The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. We'll be back with author Josh Mensch right after these messages. quiet thoughts come floating down and settle softly to the ground like gold of autumn leaves around my feet
4: I... more talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg coming up right here on whmp
7: go out to eat save 30 percent get a guitar or take lessons save 30 percent pork chops rug cleaning hypnotherapy save 30 percent the shop 30 store full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants plus tickets and events just click print and save 30 percent on the stuff you are going to buy anyway the shop 30 store open right now at whmp.com
9: looking for the perfect place to watch the game hi i'm caleb hiliadis head brewer of amherst brewing Make the Hangar Pub and Grill your go-to spot to catch all the action this season. Our famous wings come with your choice of 26 flavors, and with 25 years of beer making experience, there's an Amherst beer for every drinker. Now that's a winning combo. Join us for weekly trivia nights at Amherst, Westfield, Agawam, South Hadley, and Greenfield. Visit
12: HangerPub.com for more of what we have cooking and brewing today.
5: Some people know how to prepare seafood. Seafood's delicate, you don't want a heavy hand. Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's Restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood. Wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh Seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton.
9: On Tuesday, March 21st, Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts invites you to attend our annual Celebrity Bartender event from 5 to 8 p.m. at the Student Prince. This year's Celebrity lineup includes Al Casper, Savage Arms, Amanda Garcia, Elms College, Brian Hauser, Belize Motor Group, Matt McGuire, TD Bank, Carla Casenzi, Tommy Carr Auto Group, Mayor Dominic Sarno, and Rock 102's own Steve Nagel. All are welcome as we raise support for JA's work inspiring youth to succeed in the Pioneer Valley since 19.
1: 19-
4: you're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: And we are back. We are um, talking with author Josh Mensch, who wrote a book called The Nazi Conspiracy The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. Thanks so much for joining us, Josh Mensch. What was the plot?
11: Well, it's a pleasure to be here and to talk about this book. Uh, So uh, this book uh, called The Nazi Conspiracy, which I wrote with uh, author Brad Meltzer, um, is about a conspiracy in the middle of World War II, in 1943 um, to potentially uh, on the part of the Nazis to assassinate uh, Franklin Roosevelt, um, uh, Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. no, also known as the big three, the big three allied leaders uh, in November of 1943 in Tehran, when these three leaders were meeting face to face for the first time uh, at a historic summit in Tehran, Iran. And uh, there, this plot, there have been stories and rumors about this plot for years and years. Uh, it's a subject of some controversy. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of speculation and misinformation out there. And uh, we decided to really delve in and, and try to tell the story of this potential assassination plot. And more importantly, really tell the story of the context surrounding it, uh, what was happening during the war at this time and uh, and and what this plot would really mean and the significance of it uh, to, uh, to world history. So that was our subject and we just sort of dove right into it.
1: And what is the answer with respect to uh, the importance of this plot and what it meant for world history.
11: Well, uh, the importance of the plot is very linked to the importance of the conference itself. Uh, so this was again right in the middle of World War II, and uh, you know Nazi Germany had had uh, was embarking on its crusade to take over uh, Europe and and was had launched its its surprise attack on the Soviet Union and just this absolutely epic. Um, uh, conquest is going on, and and this this just brutal brutal war between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union is defending itself against uh, the Nazi armies that are are just just marching east and just destroying everything in their path, and um, and causing just massive destruction and the wholesale slaughter of civilians. And uh, the Soviet Union is desperately defending its territory and uh, the Nazi armies got very, very close to Moscow, but didn't quite get there. And that's, you know, uh, at a point when the United States enters the war and begins uh, supplying the Soviet Union with arms and supplies to defend itself. So uh, the Soviet Union, the United States and the United Kingdom uh, formed this very, very important but very fragile alliance against Uh, the Axis powers, uh, Nazi Germany, and of course, Imperial Japan. So the war is just absolutely in full swing. Um, uh, The level of destruction is massive. Uh, There's a feeling that the entire future of, of essentially the future of humanity is at stake. And it all depends on these leaders, the allied leaders forming a united front and coming up with a grand strategy to try to defeat Nazi Germany. And Roosevelt, really believe that it was essential for the three leaders to meet in person. Um, that in order to truly formulate a plan and to, uh, to show the world complete unity, that these three leaders had to get together and meet face to face and make some absolutely critical decisions about not just military strategy, but the sort of larger global strategy of the war. Um, and so for almost a year, uh, Roosevelt and his partner Churchill are trying to convince Joseph Stalin to meet um, and it becomes a really important goal of 1943, which again is this critical middle year of the war when um, the tide is starting to turn in the Allies' favor, but there's still a lot of fighting to do and, and the death camps are in full swing. Uh, the level of death and destruction happening on a daily basis is simply overwhelming. And so there's incredible time pressure to try to truly turn the tide of the war. And Roosevelt felt that this was absolutely crucial that these three leaders meet. Um, and so for months and months and months, they are embark on this plan to try to convince Stalin to meet. And then once, once Stalin agrees to figure out where to meet, how to meet, when to meet. And it's an incredibly complicated endeavor because uh, the need for security at such a meeting is so intense, and travel at that time—you know—it took two—it ye- took two weeks to to cross the country, to cross the world at that time. And so, uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who's in a wheelchair, um, is not—it's not easy for him to travel. So the logistics are are incredibly complicated. Um, but they finally are able to arrange this meeting. And of course, Nazi Germany is their intelligence services are trying to sniff out everything that's going on with the Allies. So once Nazi Germany learns about this meeting, they see an opportunity to do something epic that could you know really turn the war in their favor. And that's having all these three leaders in one place where they're vulnerable and where at least potentially uh, the nazi Nazi intelligence services could could get a shot at them. So that's really what our our book is about. How close did they come? Uh, well, that's a matter of some debate, and and we get into some of the different theories uh, about how close they really came to being able to do this. Um, and they certainly knew that the three leaders were there. And what we talk about a lot in this book is that they their intelligence services has, had already created a, a connection to the city of Tehran. And uh, the Nazis had underground agents who were operating in the city. Uh, And they were already sending, it was, uh, Iran was an allied territory at that point, uh, because there was a very important railroad that ran through it, uh, that the allies needed to get supplies from the U.S. to the Soviet Union. So the allies were controlling that region, but there was an underground movement in Tehran of Nazi sympathizers, and there were a few key Nazi agents on the ground who had an infrastructure. And so planes were flying from Berlin and dropping parachutes into Iran um, with supplies and money and weapons. Uh, So they had a a system in place, um, and then once they learned that this summit was to take place in in Tehran, and it was taking place there at at Stalin's insistence, um, they had an infrastructure in place to get weapons and get personnel there. Uh, And they had a whole, all these special forces teams that were kind of ready to strike. Um, Now there's some debate as to how far, how advanced their plan was. And we get into that debate in the book Um, But certainly it was advanced enough that when the allies learned about this potential plot, they completely changed their entire plan for the meeting uh, on the ground in Tehran. Let me ask you a slightly different question. Um,
0: Why was Stalin... So reluctant to meet, he desperately wanted the armaments from the United States. Russia was being frightfully overrun uh, by Nazi Germany. They were close to taking taking over the uh, and winning the war, the ground war in, in the Soviet Union. Why was why was Stalin so reluctant? His, he lost twenty five million Russians in this war. Why was he so reluctant to meet with Churchill and particularly with Roosevelt? Who he
11: desperately wanted, him them to give him armaments, if nothing else. Yes, well, that's a great question, and and you're right. Uh, you know, one of the one of the key ideas and themes of this book, is that World War II, the heart of the ground war, was in the Soviet Union, and I feel like uh, Americans learn a certain view of of the war that's very focused on where Americans were fighting, but the real war, the heart of it, was Nazi Germany. Uh, fighting the Soviet Union on Soviet soil. That's where the absolutely massive battles were taking place. That's where the loss of life was simply staggering. And uh, 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 the Soviet Union had been battered and battered and battered, but Stalin's, uh, you know, is gathering his Soviet armies to fight back. And you're right, they desperately needed uh, the aid from the United States and the United Kingdom. And even more than that, what Stalin really, really wanted, and we talk about this a lot in the book, is for Uh, the united states and the united kingdom to strike at nazi forces in europe and they were reluctant to do that for a long long time Uh, the united states and the united kingdom were fighting italy they were uh, in northern africa and in stalin's mind this was just a big sideshow uh italy was not a real threat in their minds uh and so they were wondering why is why are the us and the uk bothering you know with italy he wanted them to strike in france and the us and the uk kept promising that they would do that but they were delaying and delaying and delaying and it was driving stalin crazy uh so there was a kind of a power game going on between these big three three leaders they all needed each other uh the us and the uk were always afraid that stalin was going to strike a deal with hitler that would allow nazi germany to survive uh, because stalin was a very wily character and they didn't really know where his sympathies lay so there was a real power struggle between the three allied leaders and stalin Part of it was that he was just playing his hand, and he believed he, he had some leverage over the two of them. And he was kind of um, using this potential meeting to try to get more out of them. He also simply didn't want to leave the Soviet Union. Uh, he didn't think a meeting in, in person was all that important. He didn't quite understand why. And he really did not want to leave the Soviet Union. But they could not do the meeting in the Soviet Union because it was important for the world to see them meeting in a neutral territory. So part of it was just he simply didn't want to leave. Um, And when he finally agreed to the meeting, it had to be in his neck of the woods. So Iran is very close to the Soviet Union. It's across the globe from the United States. So he sort of forced Roosevelt to travel all this way. Uh, But it is a little surprising because he needed he wanted the US and the UK to attack so badly. And it is a little puzzling why he played sort of played hard to get with this summit for so long. But that's what he did and the soviet and and roosevelt ended up agreeing to so many concessions and it was all on stalin's terms this meeting but it finally took place they overcame all these obstacles and at this meeting at this summit is where they finally came up with the plan to uh, embark on the attack into france which we now know you know as the normandy invasion Uh, But it took this in-person summit to make that happen. And Churchill uh, had been very reluctant to do it for a long time. And it was at the summit that they finally pressed Churchill to agree to do it.
1: So Josh Minch, you and and, uh, Brad Meltzer, your co-author of The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. It sounds like there's an intense amount of research that you had to go through in order to write this book. So, Uh, where did you find your information? How did you research this book?
11: Well, that's a great question. And you're right that the research, uh, I mean, World War II is such a vast epic story. Of course, a million books have been written about it. Um, So there's certainly no shortage of information out there. But the challenge for us was both to dive into the specifics of this particular, you know, potential uh, plot, assassination plot, and everything that's out there, all the information you can find about that, which involved delving into all kinds of you know uh, uh intelligence documents in the in the uk uh soviet files uh you know nazi germany uh, uh archives uh, as well as united states archives and there's a lot of kind of complicated information out there about that that was very hard to weed through a lot of misinformation uh but also we wanted to convey the bigger story of the war because that's really why this this plot matters and so we also wanted to give Uh, viewers a global view of what was happening in the war and why the stakes were so high and also uh, highlight uh, the the Slaughter of civilians the death camps and all of that because that was so important too So you add all that research together and it was truly an epic undertaking uh, to tell this story But that was also what made it so fun was the chance to learn so much
1: How long did it take you to write the book to research and then write the book Josh?
11: Well, it's it's hard to say because, you know, the research starts early and there's you're kind of doing the research while working on other projects and then it picks up steam and then the research peaks and then you start writing and then there's more research to do during the writing. So, it's hard to say when it starts and ends, but it was it was a multi-year project. And of course, you always just want to keep researching. There's always more to learn and you always feel like you want to add more and more and more and more and part of the struggle is to try to pare down some of the information.
0: You're a historian. You knew this story more or less before you started, at least in outline form. What was the thing that most struck you when you said to yourself, oh my God, I didn't know that. That really explains something to me. Was there such a moment for you?
11: Well, you know, I I alluded to it a little bit earlier. Um, I I mean, there's all the information we learned about this specific plot, but for me, uh, just taking on the whole subject of World War II, I would say that the big theme for me was that our basic understanding of Americans uh, of the war is a little bit off uh, and that the scale of suffering and destruction and the slaughter of civilians and and just the sheer number of civilian casualties is just absolutely overwhelming. And of course, in the United States, you know, we valorize the soldiers who died on Normandy Beach and rightfully so. But that's just a tiny, tiny drop of the bucket in terms of this, just the entire populations that were wiped off the planet. The scale of, of, of the Nazi death program, of course, that's well known, but it wasn't just the parts of it that we know. There was just the massive slaughter of civilians during the war. Uh, there was the massive uh, uh, suffering in, um, in East Asia, in China, Ah, uh, China lost twenty million people to this war. The Soviets lost twenty five million, as you alluded to. The scale of it is so overwhelming. Um, and it just expands your whole notion of the war and how and how horrible it was and how destructive it was. and And it makes the kind of, Cliched war stories that we've heard feel a little bit silly when you when you learn the true scope of devastation And and to just always keep that part of it Those are the stakes of the war and we really tried to highlight that in our book because it makes every Smaller decision that's made feel so important well, that, uh, because of just the sheer level of suffering.
1: Yeah I, I, That's a an important place to to leave it uh, We can only be happy that this plot uh Failed. Uh, History would have been a very different history had it been successful. Uh, Josh Mensch, uh, together with Brad Meltzer, have written the book The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. Thank you so much for writing the book, and thank you for sharing uh, your views with us today.
11: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
1: For us as well. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back in just a couple of minutes with Megan Zinn and the writer's block. As a special guest today. we will be right back.
4: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
10: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Kenneth Santana Rodriguez, the man accused of shooting and killing an employee of a salon in the Holyoke Mall, was set to be in Holyoke District Court this morning. A probable cause hearing was scheduled for the 23-year-old for a judge to listen to testimony from witnesses and determine whether the evidence is enough to send the case to Superior Court. Rodriguez is charged with murder in the death of 33-year-old Trung Tran of West Springfield. Tran was an employee of the Touch of Beauty Hair and Nail Salon who prosecutors say was shot when a dispute between Rodriguez and another man inside the salon turned violent. The victim was caught in the crossfire and died before he could be taken to the hospital, according to the DA's office. A two-car crash on Route 10 in Bernardston Saturday night sent one person to the hospital. The Bernardston Fire Department reported that calls came in at 6.17 p.m. after two cars collided heading westbound in the area of the Dead River Company on Northfield Road. All of the occupants of both vehicles were evaluated on scene and one person was brought to the hospital by Northfield EMS with minor injuries. A teenager reported missing more than a week ago has been found safe. According to the official Facebook page of the town of Huntington, Joshua West has been found. State police have been looking for the public's help in finding the 17-year-old last seen in the Norwich Lake area on February 16th. Now with your forecast, 22 News Meteorologist Adam Stremko.
11: For today, look for increasing clouds, highs 34 to 38. Tonight, snow could be heavy at times overnight. Overnight lows 22 to 26. And the for Tuesday, snow tapering off during the afternoon. Highs in the low to mid-30s. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. 101.5,
4: 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts.
11: Are you an educator? Want to be more confident teaching about environmental issues? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst offers hundreds of curriculum units, lesson plans,
15: classroom activities, and professional development workshops for K-12 teachers. Come check us out. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street
11: in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org.
12: Hopes for a better spring housing market have dimmed a bit as mortgage interest rates, which had moderated since the first of the year, have gone up again. The Mortgage Bankers Association reports the average 30-year rate jumped to 6.62%. Amazon and One Medical have officially joined forces to make it easier for consumers to access telemedicine. Telehealth services are available 24-7, and in-person appointments are typically made for the same day or within one day. The annual fee is $144. The Federal Housing Administration has announced it is reducing mortgage insurance premiums paid by most people who buy a home with an FHA loan. The rate used to determine the premium is being reduced, Officials say it could save the average borrower around $800 a year. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at consumeraffairs.com. You're
4: listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: And welcome back to the show. I'm Buzz Eisenberg, and we are, this is Monday, and uh, Monday we have the, our weekly writer's block segment. With Megan Zinn. Megan, what do you have for us today?
16: Well, my guest is writer Margot Dwaihee, and I am very excited to have her here. Uh, Margot is a novelist, poet, and educator based in Northampton. She teaches creative writing and editing publishing at Franklin Pierce University, and she is co editor of the Cambridge University Press Elements in Crime Narrative Series. We've got to give her all the bona fides here. And an editor of the Journal of Creative Writing Studies, and she has published several collections of poetry. But we're here today to talk talk about her novel Scorched Grace which was released last Tuesday fittingly on on Mardi Gras you'll you'll find out why and it was released, it was the first book released by Gillian Flynn Books um, and it's getting rave reviews, was named a New York, Time edit- New York Times Editor's Choice and one of the most anticipated crime books of the year by crime reads and LGBTQ reads. Uh, and Margo will be at Odyssey Bookshop tonight in South Hadley at 7pm discussing Scorched Grace with Deborah Jo Immergut, who's another great local writer. And you can find out more on the Odyssey Bookshop website. Welcome, Margo. Thank you. Um, and again, my guest is Margot Duwayhi, and she is the author of
17: Scorched Grace. Thanks for being here. So exciting to be here, and thanks for everyone to listening for listening. I'm a passionate radio listener. I oh, love the radio in our area. It's such a wonderful and intimate way to be in the community. So thanks for having me. Pleasure.
16: So tell us um, the basic sort of uh, elevator line of what this what
17: um, Scorched Grace is about. Who done it? Yay! And the the. Hard-boiled styled amateur sleuth is a tatted-up, fisticuffs, gold-toothed, queer punk nun mm-hmm. named Sister Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the things I love in life—put together mysteries—just thrown into a blender. The hard-boiled style and lineage of Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, mixed with some, you know, riot girl mm-hmm. rage and joy and mm-hmm. queer theory, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. in the one. Fall. And I was going to ask you to read just a little bit of the beginning of the book. You can't read much more because you'll give stuff away. Ooh, no spoilers. The devil isn't in the details. Evil thrives in blind spots, in absence, negative space, like the haze of a sleight of hand trick. The details are God's work. My job is keeping those details in order. It took me four and a half hours to do the laundry and clean the stained glass, and my whole body felt wrecked every tendon strained, even swallowing hurt. So when my sisters glided into the staff lounge for the meeting, folders and papers pressed against their black tunics, I slipped into the alley for some divine reflection. A smoke break. It was Sunday, dusk. Vice on the Sabbath, I know, not my finest moment, but carpe diem. Fantastic. Um, So tell us, what was the kernel of this book? What
16: did you start with that the book grew out of?
17: A lifelong obsession with mysteries. Okay. Reading them, watching Mm -hmm. them, trying to solve the mystery along with the sleuth. And then that discovery that, oh, wow, the author is this engineer Mm -hmm. putting these clues together, this clue work. So you have both this immersive story experience where there is this propulsive urgent need to figure something out, and yet Mm -hmm. time seems to slow, especially when there's a sense of place that's very present, Mm -hmm. and when there are characters that you deeply want to understand, unpack, and almost solve the mystery of that that mystery solver. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's just this nesting of mysteries. It's a real fascinating experience as a reader, and writing has been a lifelong pursuit, mostly starting with poetry, Mm -hmm. started writing poetry when I was 12, There's also a great overlap of poets who are crime writers. Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, of course. Actually, Arthur Conan Doyle, Mm -hmm. Margaret Atwood, um, Chris Abani. Interesting. Borges, Mm -hmm. you know, who both write poetry Mm -hmm. and mysteries. And I was fascinated by that, those riddles, deciphering codes and clues. So I thought, okay, let's let's do this. And I wanted to roll the dice with a really unique character. Yeah, you did that pushes and pushes against genre conventions as well as advances Mm -hmm. them and pays homage to them. And the character herself loves P.I. Marlowe and loves the classics as well as comments on them. So holding space for that dichotomy. Yeah. Yeah. And how did how did she grow? How did Sister Holiday grow? What did she start with? The character herself? Yeah, the character herself. I went to Catholic school. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I grew that comes up out. with with a very, fa- uh, you know, quite religious family, and still are. And they, it's religion has brought a lot of comfort to many families of men, many members of my family, of many people. And also, when I was coming of age, I was closeted. It wasn't a comfortable space for me mm-hmm. to be in, you know, service. So I did grow away from it. But it's still part of me. Yeah. So part of this this character is an exploration of queer futures where you can inhabit the life that you want to inhabit. You can be both unapologetically queer and and faithful, if you so choose. Mm -hmm. It's not my path in life. This is a fiction experience. But this is a very reparative, very celebratory book, as well as one exploring Mm -hmm. trauma, resilience, challenges, overcoming those challenges. So there's, you know, that... That interest, though, in a hard-boiled, gritty, raw voice, yeah. fueled that Sister Holiday character. Okay, all right. And um, so, my guest is writer
16: Thank Margaret Duaihe, and I think we've got a question from Bill.
0: I do. I'd like to know this. You talk about this experience. Did you know the plot, writ large, before you started writing, or did the plot change as you as you wrote?
17: Great question. I think the. Uh, the yes <laughs> question is so appropriate and the answer is yes and no i laid a baseline so that i could improvise mm-hmm. and i did i wanted this book to have its own tempo its own rhythm so i knew there'd be points in the story that that had to basically s- create you know a chain of reactions so mm-hmm. i did know the ending but I had to let I had to write through that experience of discovery so that the characters could surprise themselves so I had to give myself a lot of room this took years to write because I really wanted to feel mm-hmm. that level of discovery eureka horror as the characters yeah. were it really took a long time and yeah. it, a lot of revisions more than you know more than I can remember
16: yeah but a book like this has to be very precise, you can't, there's no There's no room. no room for error in, I think, in a mystery, in a, in a good whodunit. Um, and why did you choose, I mean, it, it fits beautifully having it set in New Orleans, but um, what made you choose New
17: Orleans? That's so setting. New Orleans is a place of great celebration, bon temps roulet, oh, you know, yes. let the good times mm-hmm. roll, and storms and hurricanes yeah. and difficulties. And it, it does, like a lot of the characters in the book, hold space. For the miracles and the curses, yeah, for that sense sense of resilience mm-hmm. as well, because this is a book of resilience, even with great challenges and difficulties. Yeah, and New Orleans was just that perfect protagonist. Mm-hmm with Sister Holiday, yeah, really perfect. just a character all its own. Yeah, and a strong Catholic
16: city, too, which probably helped um, for your purposes. Um, I, I People will often say that a um, the town is a character, the city is a character in a book. Um, New Orleans is definitely a character. So is the heat. The heat yes. is a character. And the, the heat and the humidity um, is a very uh, um, affecting character in this book. Um, my guest is um, Margaret Duahy, and... Um, we and you, you obviously
17: know New Orleans well. You lived there for a time? Yeah, I lived there for two years. Okay. Not long enough, but I definitely will be back for the Tennessee Williams Festival in March. Oh, how fun.
16: How fun. Um, so, um, again, my guest is Margaret Dwyhy, and her book is Scorched Grace. And we'll be back and asking some more questions. Thank you so much.
4: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
18: If your Spanish-speaking
10: employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100 percent of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton.
18: I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Francis Rayum, The Money Doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced—college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution, if any, will arise. The Hug Plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Francis Ray. I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com.
4: It happens all over Massachusetts. Can you tie my shoes? In every home and every community.
7: Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen
4: anytime, anywhere.
9: will see you at this
4: And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts
13: Department of Elementary and Very Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at Bass.gov slash Back to School. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education.
16: What if there were a way to go into cancer surgery or treatment feeling more comfortable and optimistic? Recorded meditations can help. Doctors have said that it makes their job simpler. Nurses tell us their patients may go home sooner and need less pain medication. Cancer Connection creates custom meditations for people affected by cancer, and you don't even have to come in. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge.
4: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: Yes, we are back. This is Writer's Block. Bill, you had a question.
0: Well, I do have a question for our author in the studio, who's written apparently, I have not read it. I apologize for that in advance, but what sounds like a fascinating fascinating novel with so much that is actually reality based Mm -hmm. I would like to know more about your process Um, I I interview many more non-fiction and fiction writers but the process of fiction is so much different in so many fundamental ways one of which is you just can't go research I'm going to spend three hours researching today and make this come out and that'll be a productive day writing in the book doesn't work that way and, the, and fiction writers often talk about getting into this zone of writing. Nonfiction writers do too, but fiction writers more, I've got to be in the zone. And I need to see what my characters are doing because the characters, they're like real people. they really do things. They do unexpected things. They say unexpected things, which changes the plot sometimes. And I'm wondering if you could tell us more about your process in that regard.
17: Absolutely. The zone for me is attunement, and it is a deep state of hyper-focus. And it starts with uh, that attuning to the space and the characters and creating that deep listening environment so I can listen to these fictional characters, (laughs) giving them that kind of electricity that they can have with one another. Dialogue is so important. It's gotta have cadence, Mm -hmm. it has to have friction. It's gotta give us subtext. And that only happens in for me in those moments of really deep focus and deep listening. And so it's exhausting. And I also <laughs> feel everything the characters feel. Oh, that's hard. Every single one. And it's not just a cerebral mind experience, it's a whole body experience for me. It's very kinetic. That's where the heat comes into mm-hmm. this book. Yep. I was really sense. trying to channel that 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 in almost struggle with mm-hmm. your environment too, yeah. where it can be very blissful. It's, you know, you're sweating, and it's it's it can be even fun or give you a bit of a high. The big easy. Mm-hmm. The big easy, yeah. exactly. And all of those kind of touchstone things that we think about or perhaps know if we've been there or within the imagination of New Orleans. So many books are set there, all the Anne Rice books, thousands of books. I wanted to do something a little different so going back to your great question, Bill, is just that really deep kind of both the resonance and the dissonance of actually being with real people. And sometimes I have to spend a whole day recovering after I if I write for six or eight eight hours. Wow, that's
16: fascinating. As my guest is Margaret Dwayne and Margot, Margaret, sorry about that. Margot Dwayne, misspoke. Um, And her book is Scorched Grace. And she's going to be at Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley tonight at 7 p.m. And her book is, we can get your book pretty much everywhere, I would imagine, but- um, it's, it's in most bookstores, available yep. online.
17: Broadside Books, Odyssey mm-hmm. Bookshop, Book Moon Books, all our incredible shops here yes. in the Valley, which I love so much, our independent businesses. We actually
16: have a lot of wonderful bookstores.
17: And, you know, through this book, I have been able to form friendships and partnerships with the uh, booksellers. And that means so much to mm-hmm. me because our local bookstores are not just places to buy books, but they bring the community together with events and they do. conversations, mm-hmm. and it's so hard. They're swimming upstream against <laughs> the big shops like <laughs> they Amazon. They really are. So whenever we can support the local businesses, mm-hmm. I'm a huge advocate of that, and I love that this quirky, you know, queer crime fiction book that both honors, you know, the tradition of hard-boiled mm-hmm. and sort of tries to chart a new path forward can be something that the bookstores can talk about Yeah, and say, well, if you like, if you like Chandler, if you like, you know, riot girl zines, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you might, this is a weird Venn diagram of that. Yeah,
16: yeah. So what, um, what initially, do you recall what initially drew, dr- you know, drew you to mystery and crime fiction?
17: I, you know, I think it was that you know, rolling up your sleeves with the sleuth. You know, mm-hmm. I think I was the only kid in Scranton who dressed up as Poirot for Christmas. Ah, I love that. I just always loved that the taxonomy of the sleuths you got your cozy, you've got your mm-hmm. scandi noir. And, you know, there's just a robust, phenomenal world around mysteries themselves. And then I actually did do a PhD in detective fiction with a, right. a focus on identity, queer identities and causality and craft and how they all fit together. So this book really is that merger of those interests as well. But to the, your initial point, that act, active moment mm-hmm. where as a kid you're reading Encyclopedia Brown and mm-hmm. Nancy Drew and then watching the shows, it's just so interactive. I love that immersion.
16: Yeah, I love that, um, and um, and I love the fact that you wrote your doctor doctoral thesis on this. You've really been preparing for this book for a very yeah. long time, <laughs> um, and and developing that expertise. Um, what what do you find most exciting about uh, the genre right now, the crime and mystery genre? What's going on?
17: Again, it's just this extraordinary, expansive moment where people say, "We love mysteries, we love thrillers, and we want to add our voices, different voices." Uh, diverse voices mm-hmm. inclusive voices they are good for genre yeah. because everyone is elevating their game and it's an exciting moment for for queer crime fiction for for mysteries in general yep. the more divo- uh, diverse voices the better yeah yeah and again my guest is
16: margot margot Doahi. and um and, and we got to finish up but tell us what you're working on now Book two. Book two. (laughs) The Sister Holiday series. Mm
17: -hmm. The uh, second book is called Blessed Water. It'll be out in 2024, and this is a trilogy. Oh, no surprise to folks who know about the Holy Trinity. (laughs) Oh, perfect.
16: And can you tell us anything about what the um, the crime is, or will that give too much away to even give that?
17: Let's just say it takes place over three days: Good Friday, Mm -hmm. Saturday, and Easter Sunday. Oh my, that's stacked. (laughs) (laughs) We will
1: have to have you back, Margo, to talk about that.
17: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Megan, as always. For those of you who have been listening in the morning, thank you for spending some of your day with us. For those who are listening in the afternoon, coming up right after the news break, another full hour of Talk to Talk, including our tribute to the wonderful John Olver, who died last week, and everything that he's done. Uh, For us, we will be celebrating. For Bill Newman, for Dan Torres, and our WHMP team I'm Buzz Eisenberg for Talk to Talk. Thanks.
17: Power
4: to the Tag your it. Power Tom Hartman. To weekdays weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance. Commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. (laughs)
15: For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413
4: since W-H-M-P Northampton, W-H-M-Q Greenfield, Northampton Radio Group Station. It's
12: 11 o'clock.